So as we start, I want you to think about a time when you were a team that you were rooting for won the big game or the championship of some kind. Or maybe you had a child who won a competition or you, you were a band parent and the band uh, did really well in a contest. Or you have a grandchild who accomplished something you're very proud of. Maybe, like me, maybe you're just happy when your favorite movie wins Best Picture. This year, rooting for Oppenheimer. On some level, that victory, whatever it was, uh, on some level, you feel as if you've participated in it. Even if you never lifted a finger to make it happen. You're not just proud of it. You kind of own it as yours. You celebrate it. You participate in it. You don't believe me? You may even shout, We won! No. They won, you watched. And yet we participated in it. A couple of weeks ago, before we knew for sure who was going to face off in the Super Bowl, this map was released to show the number of Detroit Lions fans, and they referred to them as America's team. Those people in blue, had the Lions gone on, would have participated in that victory in a special way. Indeed, I imagine that many of them felt their loss to the 49ers as if it were theirs as well. Just ask Sally Lauk. If you were able to envision an experience like that in your own life, I invite you just to hold that experience, whatever it was, hold it in your mind, just let it kind of sit with you as we we talk this morning. Last Sunday, Pastor Christian showed us that the, the vision, the interlude we find in Revelation 10, introduces us to an interlude that we find in Revelation chapter 11. And in chapter 10, we read about the little scroll. This scroll, as Kristen said, is the same scroll we encountered in chapter 6, the scroll uh, that was sealed up with the seven seals. And as the seven seals were opened one by one, the scroll was open. But so far, we don't know what was written in the scroll. But we are about to learn. The angel who spoke to John in the first verse of chapter 10 told him to take the scroll and to eat it. When he did so, it tasted sweet in his mouth, but bitter and sour in his stomach. Now, if you missed last week's message in Revelation 10, I recommend you go back and catch it online. You can find it on our website at ecclife.net slash media. After John has eaten the scroll, he is told in the last verse of chapter 10, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Chapter 11, then, is the unfolding of that prophecy and the contents of the scroll. Symbolically, John has eaten the scroll, and now he lives it. It kind of gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, you are what you eat. Let's keep in mind that the interludes we find in chapters 10 and 11 take place in between the 6th and 7th trumpets, which are the, the, the second cycle of the three cycles in Revelation, seals, trumpets, and bowls. A couple of weeks ago, we took a broader look at these three cycles, and I said then that most scholars see these as different points of view of the same time period. That period takes place between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. So in other words, we are currently living in the time of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Because of these three cycles, because these three cycles speak of the same period of time, we're not going to be talking about them in depth anymore, but we will be all around them in the interludes as we are today. 
Chapter 11 is number 5 of 10 interludes we find in the book of Revelation. These interludes are meant to give us a break from what we might call, what I do call, Revelation fatigue. We've actually had conversations about, okay, we're ready to start finishing up the book of Revelation. Do we just plow right through it, or is it going to wear people out? Revelation fatigue. They give us hope. These interludes give us hope. They give us a picture of what is going on behind the scenes, and they propel the story forward. John writes in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. So once again, this imagery draws heavily from the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 40, the prophet sees a vision of a man with the appearance of bronze, and this man is holding a measuring rod in his hand. He gives this rod to Ezekiel. Ezekiel then measures the wall and the temple and the outer court. The temple imagery in Revelation 11, however, is a metaphor for the church, the people of God, not the physical temple in Jerusalem. The measuring of the people of God, then, is to protect them from the judgment. It is another way of saying, if you were with us back when we looked at chapter 7, uh, it is another way of saying what happened there, where God placed a seal on the foreheads of the 144,000 to protect them. It was an answer to the question, who will be able to stand in the judgment? The ones whom God has sealed. Here, God is talking about measuring to protect the people of God. In chapter 11, verse 2, however, the angel tells John not to measure the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, because it has been given over to them. The outer court has been given over to the Gentiles who will trample on the holy city for 42 months. This speaks of a time of tribulation and suffering for God's people. 42 months is three and a half years. That also takes us back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 12, where he has a vision of a man clothed in linen who tells him that the things he's written about will take place after, quote, a time, times, and a half time which is translated as a year, two years, and a half a year, three and a half years. What Daniel prophesies in this last chapter of his books directly speaks to the final judgment and to the resurrection of the dead that will come at the end of time. In that sense, these two passages are very much related. The picture Daniel gives us is of a promise of eventual victory in the coming judgment of God, but also of a time of waiting and suffering at the hands of the wicked in the meantime, the people whom the angel in Revelation refers to as the Gentiles. He doesn't mean literal Gentiles, non-Jews, but people who oppose God's work and God's people. The Gentiles symbolize those who oppose the church. This three-and-a-half-year period is also not literal, but symbolic. Surprise! It is half The three and a half years is half of the perfect, whole, complete seven years to the Hebrew way of thinking. So this 42-month period falls short of the perfection of the number seven. It represents a season of suffering before the time of judgment and eventual victory. The season to lesser or greater degrees through which we all must journey. We all must journey through this season. It is the kind of thing that Jesus himself was speaking about when he said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Literally the word there is tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
During this season of suffering before the coming and final kingdom of God, however, God has a plan. God has a plan. The voice continues in verses 3 and 4. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Anybody want to take a guess how many years 1,260 days is? Three and a half. Surprise! These two witnesses are drawn in a very complex way, and again, highly symbolic. To the question, why are there two of them? The answer goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where Moses instructed the people that for someone to be convicted of a crime, the testimony of at least two witnesses was required. These two witnesses are called olive trees and lampstands. Now that comes to us directly from Zechariah chapter 4, where the prophet sees two olive trees and a lampstand, and he asks the angel to tell him, what are these? What are these? He has to ask him three times before the angel finally gives him the answer. These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth, the angel says. Now, these two are never actually named in the book of Zechariah. They're likely Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, tomato, tomato, I don't care how you pronounce it. Zerubbabel, the, the, the governor of Joshua, the, and, and the governor of the province and Joshua, the high priest. For the two of them are always mentioned together in the book of Zechariah. But in Revelation 11, we learn more about these two witnesses who are being compared to the two anointed in Zechariah 4. I hope you're following this. Verses 5 and 6. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Again, this is highly symbolic language. As the passage unfolds, the witnesses are described using characteristics from the, uh, of the prophet Elijah when fire, fire devours their enemies and when they pray and it does not rain. They're described as Moses-like in turning water into blood and unleashing plagues upon the earth as happened in the Exodus. Going back to the, the image of the lampstands, here that word does double duty. For not only are lampstands part of Zechariah 4, but in the book of Revelation, lampstands represent something else. Very early on in John's vision of Jesus, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus tells John that the seven lampstands in his vision are the seven churches to whom Revelation is written. The seven lampstands are seven churches. So the two witnesses are not literal people. They represent God's faithful church. Those who were faithful in John's day, those to whom Revelation was originally written. And they represent us. They represent us. The two witnesses model for us how to live and bear witness to Jesus in the world and how to conquer. Not through violence and control, but through suffering, just as Jesus did. You'll see that in a minute. These, these images, these comparisons to Elijah and Moses are meant to stir you up. But you're going to see what happens in a minute. They're going to conquer just as Jesus did through suffering. These two witnesses are something else. The whole time, this symbolic three and a half years, 
that represents the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. The witnesses have been prophesying, they have been demonstrating works of power and bearing witness to Jesus. But then we read this in verses 7 through 10. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. The beast that comes up from the abyss kills these two witnesses whose bodies are now left dead in the street. Now I know all y'all want me to talk about the beast, but we're going to come back to him later. He will appear again in chapter 13, and there are actually two of them, in fact, thing one and thing two. The beast, however, is not the star of the show. The beast is not the star of the show. These two witnesses, they are the star of the show. The church of Jesus Christ is the star of this show. And yet, the beast kills these two witnesses and leaves them unburied in the street. And people celebrate like it's the 4th of July. And where are these streets? Well, they are in the great city, which is figuratively or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. That's not even two cities. It's a city and a country. That's another way to refer to Babylon, which stands for Rome. But then John mixes in the imagery of Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified. He does so because in just a few minutes, a few verses, he's going to compare these two witnesses to Jesus. This mashup of Rome and Babylon and Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem says something to us, something else to us as well. When we put it all together, as scholar Richard Balcom puts it, this city is, quote, any and every city in which the church bears its prophetic witness to the nation. Any and every city in which the church bears its prophetic witness to the nations. That means Chicago, New York, London, Amsterdam, Kinshasa, Tokyo, Lafayette, and West Lafayette. Two of these things are not like the others. Two of these things just don't belong, except they do. At least when it comes to the calling upon the church to bear witness to Jesus to the nations wherever we find ourselves. Earlier we were told that the Gentiles would overrun the people of God for a season of 42 months. That is exactly what is happening in verses 7 through 10. Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation are trampling the holy city. They have attacked and put to death the two witnesses, the churches, and they are celebrating their demise. And now, like Jesus, these two witnesses lie dead for three and a half days. These three and a half days remind us of Jesus lying in the tomb for three days and of the three and a half years as a symbolic season of suffering and persecution in which all of us live until Christ's return. But judgment day is near, Sunday is coming. Verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Not only do these two witnesses act and live as Elijah and Moses, but now two other Old Testament figures impact the story. 
the imagery of the breath of life, literally the spirit coming back into the dead bodies of these two witnesses, takes us all the way back to Ezekiel 37 and the vision of the valley of dry bones, where God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones and the bones come together and prophesies again and tissues and blood vessels and muscles and skin appear and then the breath of life comes into them and they stand upon their feet, a mighty army. It is a picture of the resurrection at the last day. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This passage, by the way, is... One of, if not the main reason, we call Jesus the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man in Daniel 7 comes in the clouds and the two witnesses in Revelation 11, once raised from the dead, go up to heaven in a cloud and, in Jesus, and Jesus in Acts chapter 1 ascends in front of his disciples and a cloud hides him from their sight. It's another one of those glorious Revelation mashups that brings all these images together. These witnesses, the people of God in Christ, have participated in Christ's suffering. They have participated in Christ's death. And they have participated in Christ's resurrection. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is like when your team wins the Super Bowl or the World Series. Not that I know what that feels like or the state championship, or the Oscar for the best picture, or your grandchild wins a medal or gets a gold rating. You participated in that. In some mysterious way, it was your victory too. We who have come to know Christ and place our faith in Christ are united with Him in His death. We have died to our sin. We have participated in Christ's suffering and death, and by faith we will one day participate in his resurrection. Not only that, but we can already participate in his resurrection in the here and now. This speaks of our transformation into Christ's image, of Christ being formed within us, and it speaks of our faithfulness to do what the poet Wendell Berry says, to go out every day and practice resurrection. It is to live as those who believe Jesus when he says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. When these two witnesses rise from the dead, John says, terror strikes those who saw them. This is the beginning of their repentance, something we haven't seen in Revelation yet. Whereas before, no amount of judgment would bring any of them to repentance. Now, something does. Those three cycles of seven and all of those images of judgment were designed by God to warn people, to motivate them, to bring them to repentance. But no one repented. Judgment alone will not do the trick. This was clearly stated more than once in the book of Revelation. But if judgment alone will not bring them to repentance, what will? the suffering, death, and resurrection of the two witnesses, the faithful endurance of the church of Jesus Christ. What will bring the nations to repentance? The suffering, death, and resurrection of the two witnesses, the faithful endurance of the church of Jesus Christ. These two witnesses are not superheroes. They don't land in a three-point 
landing. I can't do that, or I would show you. If Jonah Rambo were here, he could do that. I've seen him do it. They're not superheroes. They are symbols of the enduring, faithful, suffering church and the eventual victory we are all promised in Christ Jesus. The seven churches addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 count in this. All Christians down through the ages cash in on this. Those who will come after us, they get it too. And we are also the two witnesses. This is our experience. This is our hope. This is the the sweet and bitter scroll. Once again, the promise of victory is sweet, but the suffering between Jesus' first and second comings is real and painful. It is bitter in our stomachs because victory is slow in coming. After these two witnesses have been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, there is another image of the coming judgment. Verses 13 and 14. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. Once again, we get Judgment Day imagery. We'll get even more after the seventh trumpet is sounded in the verses that follow. But before then, a severe earthquake strikes the earth and a tenth of a city of the city collapses and 7,000 people perish. Things take a dark turn. But I want us to keep a few things in mind about this image of judgment. First, in previous visions in the book of Revelation, John's readers were warned of the deaths of way more than 7,000 people, or a tenth of a city. Back in chapter 6, death and Hades are given power to kill a fourth of the earth. In chapter 8, amid the sounding of the trumpets, things are burned up or killed by thirds, including one-third of humankind. Now, if the first time it was a fourth and the second time it was a third, we would naturally expect, oh, it's going to be a half. But it's not. It's a tenth. 7,000 is still a lot of people, of course, but it is considerably less than was prophesied early. And, And we need to remember that, once again, This is symbolism, not reality as we understand it. These are symbolic visions of what is to come if people don't repent. These things haven't happened yet. We've already heard the uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were referenced. just said Sodom, but you take those two together when you hear it. When those two cities are judged in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, things were reversed. There God said he would spare the cities if ten, ten righteous persons could be found, but here one-tenth of the wicked are killed while nine-tenths survive, and at long last they repent. They give glory to God, the God of heaven. This is mercy. First Kings chapter 19, verse 18, God says that he will spare from judgment 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down to the false god of Baal. But in Revelation 11, John reverses it. 7,000 perish, but the rest of the faithful majority are spared. This is mercy. Revelation 11 is the book of Revelation in a nutshell. The central message of what Jesus and John are trying to communicate through all of the visions and judgment and interludes concerning the reality of life in between Jesus' first and second comings is summarized in Revelation 11. The rest of the book is expanding and filling in the details. In verses 15 to 19, we have the the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the promise of our ultimate victory. And I'm going to read just one verse of John's portrayal 
of that victory. Verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Cue Handel's Messiah. It would be cool if that happened, wouldn't it? For now, however, you and I and all who came before us live in between. We live in between what scholars and theologians refer to. You've probably heard this before. We live in between the now and the not yet. For now we have trouble. For now we have tribulation. For now there is still difficulty and suffering and grief and violence and death. For now. One day, Revelation 21 tells us there will be no more of this, for all things will become new. And in between now and then, in between now and then, God has a plan. God has a plan, and we, the church, we, the churches of Jesus Christ, we are that plan. We have participated in Christ's suffering and death, and we still have our own suffering and death to encounter. But we also participate in Christ's resurrection. And that frees us up to live faithfully. That frees us up to be able to endure and to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ to the nation. That frees us up to practice resurrection in every day of our lives. What is God's plan? We are God's plan. You are God's plan. What are we waiting for? Would you join with me as we close in prayer? Let's take a moment of silence, and then um, I'll close. And after that, as we, as we sing, I invite you to just honestly... In prayer and as we sing, hold before God your own suffering and difficulties, your own participation in the death of Christ. Or maybe you can think broader than that and consider all the ways in the world that there is suffering, something that is particularly on your heart this day. Consider our participation in the death of Christ. Consider our participation in his suffering. And then consider our participation in his presence and coming resurrection. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we, I just ask now that you would take this uh, very powerful, strange chapter and cause it to settle into our hearts and minds uh, in a way that uh, we can lay these things before you. Just speak to us, Lord, and allow us in this time to speak to you, whatever is on our hearts. God, we thank you that you know what it is to suffer. You have suffered for us. We thank you that even in our suffering you have not left us, that you are with us. I pray for each of us who may be facing different kinds of suffering that we would become aware of your presence, your grace, your love, your mercy. 
that we would be reminded of our ultimate victory. I pray that we would be reminded, God, of the, of the grace that is ours to, to continue to suffer for your sake and to know that you have promised us the kingdom and to know that you promised us ultimate victory. And because of that, Lord, by your grace, let us live faithfully. Let us endure. Let us bear witness. Let us be an active part of your plan, we pray, in our location and wherever you would send us. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.